listening to the Red Seat Podcast. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's in the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. Featuring Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood. Sale winds. He fires. Swing and a miss. Right play. It's over. The Red Sox have won the world championship. Welcome back to the Red Sea Podcast, episode 299. I'm your host for the evening as Jake is taking the night off. Keaton DeRocher, joined by Bob Osgood. Um, normally, this is the part where uh, we ask each other how we're doing and then have some fun little banter. Um, but I wanted to start this podcast a little differently uh, tonight, given that um, about an hour hour and a half or so before uh, we started recording. Some news broke uh, relating to my hometown in Lewiston, Maine. Um, obviously, it's still rather early in a lot of this stuff, but uh, for those who are not actively online or on Twitter or on whatnot, uh, there's active shooter going around uh, in my hometown right now. Uh, it's not not great to deal with. Uh, not something that is unfortunately unusual in this country, and that's what's frustrating about it and why I wanted to address it. Um, so many communities and people have been affected by gun violence in this country, and it's really fucking frustrating that nobody wants to do anything about it. And it's only a matter of time, it seems, before your community is effective, and now it's my turn and the folks in Lewis and Auburn. And a place where I grew up that was such a friendly and welcoming place uh, is now going to be forever changed because of this event. And I know saying all this, knowing nothing about the shooter, if there was any motive, what what triggered it, nothing except the fact that at least eight people are dead already, dozens are injured, person still at large still happening and it's just kind of ridiculous that we're okay letting this happen all over the country and it just seems like if it hasn't happened or hasn't affected you yet it's only a matter of time before it will and i just would love to see some actual action happen here in this country to stop this just a little bit of effort would be nice so, apologies for starting the show off with this uh, unrelated to Boston Red Sox news. Bit of a heavy topic, but this is where I grew up. This is my people. This is my city, my state. I felt like I needed to say something. So, we'll uh, insert the ad break here and uh, come back and get into the baseball. Now, diving into the topics for the evening, Bob, thank you for letting me have that moment. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Uh, it's terrifying, and um, obviously, prayers with everybody out there. That's just a scary situation, and appreciate you still being able to come on and chat about things that are a lot less important today. Yeah, and right off the, right the back is some big news, which is obviously what we're going to jump into first. Um First, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Spoken Keats. You can find Bob at Bob Osgood15, Jake at Dev Jake, and of course, Over the Monster at Over the Monster. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, things you want to email us, you can send that to redseatpodcast at gmail.com. Let's dive into the big news of the week Red Sox uh, GM, Chief Baseball Officer, Head Honcho position is filled. Craig Breslow, come on down. Former World Series winner, 2013 team with Boston, uh, had been uh, pulled into the Cubs front office in development through Theo Epstein and been doing some really good things there with their pitching development over the past few years. 
uh, and is now going to be leading the search or leading the uh, the Red Sox here uh, in the position as chief baseball officer. So a lot to get to surrounding that, but let's initially start with Bob Craig Breslow. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean. It sounded like this was going to be a long process, right? And when all was said and done, it was a shorter process than it was for High and Bloom. I think it was six less days that they took them to hire Breslow than Bloom. So it was interesting. Uh, they said it was going to be, you know, kind of a wide-ranging search. Um, and we can, we'll probably talk secondarily about what happened leading up to that, but with Breslow specifically, um, we're not going to know for a long time whether this is the right move, and we don't have a whole lot to go off of other than what you started talking about there, that he's done a really good job with development and improving, you know, stuff, numbers, and number of innings that have come through the Cubs organization as a pitcher, and I think... Um, having that pitching mind and baseball player experience, right? Someone that has been in the dugout um, while also, you know, this is a, a Yale graduate in molecular biophysics and biochemistry, you know, which I think all three of us graduated in as well. Um, but... You know, he's analytically driven, but also played the game for 12 seasons, understands the game from a player perspective, which I think, you know, I'm not saying that you have to have that, but I think after what they had previously, um, it'll be a good change with somebody that still has that uh, analytical experience that Breslow does. He understands the Boston market. He played in Boston for, I think, three seasons and continued to live in you know the suburbs of Boston while he still had the Cubs job. So he knows what it's like to live here, uh, what the people are like here. He's played under that pressure. As you said, he has a World Series ring with the team. So I think he's prepared, you know, who knows whether he is prepared for the job, but he is prepared for what's in front of him, and I don't think he's going to be blindsided by um, you know, if, if the, the negative feelings come in, if things aren't going well in a season, you know, whether he'll be able to handle that or, or not remains to be seen. But, you know, former teammate of Alex Cora, you mentioned the Theo Epstein part of things, but he has zero experience as a GM, just like Ian Bloom did. We have no idea how he's going to do until he starts getting out there and doing things. And, you know, we probably can't form a true opinion on him for a couple of years. Or, you know, I didn't start to turn on Bloom until halfway through his third season here. Um, so who knows? I mean, there's really no way of knowing with somebody that does not have any experience as a GM whether this is the right move. Um, but in a lot of ways, it makes sense. Uh, in you know, in terms of kind of bridging the gap between what they had previously and not going on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. I obviously when I heard the news, I, I don't think Rezla was somebody that we, when we did our initial kind of like list of names or even talked about the position was a guy that we thought um, came up basically on that list of names right. there as we were uh, one people we were hoping would get the job or kind of expecting to be in the loop came out of uh, really kind of the, the deep depths of the, of the pool, which we will also get to in a second. <laughs> um, but obviously from everything, you know, once his name started popping up more and more frequently and kind of then looking into the resume, it is, it's really interesting. And you kind of hit on, on most of the things that I wanted to touch on too, and that the the mix of former player and heavily analytical, I think, is pretty unique. And obviously, not um, exactly the the same kind of mix of traits that Bloom had, though. Uh, not that you necessarily have to. I completely agree with that. I don't think you have to be a former player to kind of understand any of that. But it kind of it adds to the perspective of the you know you're you're making decisions for these these players and these guys that. Um, 
you know, affects their, their lives and their family. And um, it does help to kind of understand where they're coming from. And certainly a guy like Breslow, who was uh, a journeyman, kind of can attest to the, <laughs> with the difficulties that that leads to. Um, right. But also just love how heavily analytically is and what he was able to do with the Cubs and develop, developing their pitching into uh, something that was rather impressive here in the minors. Um, because that is a huge, huge, huge gap for the Red Sox. Uh, notoriously terrible at developing pitchers, have been for years. And then also at the major league level, their pitching is trash right now. <laughs> and really needs to be overhauled. Um, and it, it was it is kind of one of those things where um, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that he is he's a first time GM or it's he basically is a first time GM coming in after a previous first time GM because it's one of those scenarios where um, how can you get experience doing the job if you haven't done the job before like you gotta you gotta do the job to get the experience for it so yeah um, it doesn't necessarily bother me that they're they're bringing in another first year GM. Uh, or baseball baseball operations. I think what he's bringing to the table is just a really interesting mix of traits and abilities. And uh, being a data guy myself, love the analytical piece. And obviously he demonstrated an ability to be effective at it with the development. So I think it's a really interesting fit. And it'll be interesting. And I think it'll be fun to watch. Um, and I, I mean, I totally agree. It's not something that we're like, we know now. Great fit. Everything's going to work out. We have no idea. But it'll right. be fun to watch. I think he's got a really good mind, uh, and it's an interesting fit. I think it's cool. It's a former player who won a World Series, too, so that's fun. Yeah, and, you know, who knows how involved Alex Cora was, but you'd have to think that, you know, they're coming to an understanding of what the approach is going to be during games. And we're going to talk about the playoffs a little bit today, but you see teams who are removing pitchers after the first time through the lineup. You know, and that is kind of scripted from above before the game even starts. And then you've got Bruce Bochy, who's leaving Nate Evaldi in to give him a shot in the seventh inning on the fourth time through the order, uh, having kind of a feel for things. And you'd have to think that Alex Cora is going to want that, as, um, you know, I mentioned that they had been teammates, so obviously he was okay, Breslow was okay with Cora still being there, not picking his own manager. So hopefully they can work well together in that. We don't want to see what we saw last time where the manager and the GM seem to be at odds at all. Yeah. Uh, two things about uh, this that I think are interesting. Um, obviously, the the main piece is the number of potential candidates who uh, either withdrew or turned down the invitation to interview entirely. Um is not an insignificant number of candidates um, and is uh, is quite alarming. And then um, a week after Bloom was fired, uh, Gammons was reporting that uh, the Cubs expected Breslow to move on from their organization uh, and join the Red Sox to direct their pitching development program. And then obviously I believe with how many candidates – turned it down or withdrew he was able to basically then leverage uh that into the position of baseball operations not just pitching about but i think it was interesting to note that it seemed like regardless if it was this position or not craig breslow was going to join the organization anyway yeah it's good to see that uh peter gammon still kind of has that scoop and and when we can uh when we can read his tweets and understand them from start to finish he still has some really good sources and takes out there and this was one of them i mean yeah this was september this was like the third week of september that he had mentioned breslow um so yeah i can see why we didn't make that leap that he would be a gm candidate but it's interesting going that far back that he was in the mix and somebody that was going to be part of this discussion that uh you know no one really picked up on or went with from there looking back on it um but yeah i mean do you want to get into some of the names that that did turn that down and some of the alleged reasons for that whether they may be true or not sure um do you have uh i mean do you have the list in front of you 
the five that I had, Sam Fold, Bren Gomes, Kim Eng, Michael Hill, John Daniels were the ones yeah. that I had seen. I'm sure there were more. Um, and a lot of them, there was mention of kind of, for family reasons, making it easier. And is that, you know, I don't want to move my family somewhere just to have to move my family back somewhere else a few years from now and uh, I lose my job. That was <laughs> part of the narrative. Um other kind of just the fact that there's going to be other voices in the room that you're not going to be able to to pick your manager when you come in. Now, was that one person that turned it down for that reason? Or is that was kind of turning off the whole group? Because if one person is saying that, then you, know, you pick that up from a source and you kind of run with it. And it, that became the narrative for a couple of weeks to a point that it was almost like, you know, no one wants this job. It's hard to know because neither of us have been behind the scenes and know, you know, how many people you talk to and how many are interested in a certain position, you know, how much of that was the manager and how much of that was just people kind of turned off by how they perceived Bloom to have been treated and um, thinking that he did what management asked him to do and then got fired anyways, which I don't think we really believe here. I think we all feel like he could have um, made some better moves the last two years and um, kind of that they lost confidence down the stretch with that. But, um, you know, it seemed like a bit of a circus, at least if you were on social media reading some and, and honestly, just some of the different articles that came out, whether it be The Athletic or the Boston Globe, that, that there were kind of numerous people that were turning it down for those reasons. You know, again, it's hard to know. It might have been one person that said family reasons and another that didn't like that they couldn't bring their manager in and others that, you know, might Kim Eng take a year off before taking a different job. So, you know, the answer is probably somewhere in between. Yeah, Chris Cotillo in his piece um, from earlier today kind of offers a little bit of insight into that and some other responses that people gave that make some sense. So there is obviously the treatment of Bloom and then the uh, the very short run of now we've got four in a row uh, who had four years or less um, in their tenure. So there's, as you pointed out, um, not seeing this as a permanent gig anymore um, or a long-term gig anymore. Uh, Cora potentially having too much power of the people who uh, offered up Family reasons. Um, and then uh, not being able to, I guess, Cora, his role kind of twofold, just one having uh, too much power or say, and then kind of coupled with the front office tend to get handsy at times. Um, or And then also just being in place as a manager already to, to stay. Um, there's There's a lot of things in there. And you could kind of understand why folks wouldn't be super thrilled. But it doesn't seem as if the front office and Sam Kennedy are phased. Um, Either they see it and they're not concerned or they don't see it. And I'm not sure there's a great answer there. Yeah, I just don't think that this job is as uh, terrifying as people are making it out to be. You know, like, this you don't have to come in and do a three, four-year overhaul in Boston. Like, there is a path to winning in 2024 and having a shitload of money to spend and the ability to go over the luxury tax in year one with a good farm system. Um in a good market with, you know, maybe not the most money to spend, but probably you'd think they're going to be in like the top six or seven this year now that they've reset the tax. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think that at the end of the day, yeah, there were probably a couple people that were put off by what had happened with Bloom or had questions about it. But I mean, this is going to be a good position and a good situation for somebody to come into um, with different paths to 
fix what was clearly a bad season, but at the end of the day, they were just under 500 because they really put in next to no effort in September, unfortunately, and they were a borderline playoff team with two months left in the season. Like, they're not that far away from being a successful team, from being the Arizona Diamondbacks or the Diamondbacks with more money. Yeah. I think um, it's probably not as drastic as this. I feel like I'm falling kind of in the middle of it. In that um, there are definitely red flags in there. Things that uh, you can understand why folks would turn it down. I think the... I'm I'm surprised. So in Cattell's article, he's got he lists but ten people that um, turned it down. One of them that was also interesting to me was uh, James Click, who did an interview and then withdrew, kind of feeling like he would be in a similar situation that he was in when he won the World Series and then was immediately ousted uh, with the Astros a year ago. In that the the vision that he has for the ball club would be met with resistance, which. I thought he had was flashbacks. Yeah, <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but I think it is probably somewhere in the middle. There were are, there were several legitimate reasons, like Mike Hazen um, uh, keeping his family where they're at um, makes a ton of sense. You mentioned Kimming um, taking a year off after whatever the hell happened in Miami. Right. Uh, that nonsense. So... It feels like the the volume of candidates that ended up turning it down was really just because there happened to be a lot of really good candidates out there at the moment, and some of them have legitimate reasons for uh, not wanting to pursue it. And it just kind of built up. And then, I mean, it like the 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 pieces with Cora, I think, were getting a little overplayed, and. I don't doubt the front office culture having an effect on some of them. That that piece I do believe, but that's also because I kind of hate them. So <laughs> I find it easy to believe. Easy um, to believe that someone went into a room with those guys and didn't get the greatest vibes. Yeah, I, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. Like, not entirely sure John Henry was awake for the interview. <laughs> <laughs> What's going so, on? Is there a fire? Yeah. Had to do the cold water in the face, a couple slaps. <laughs> You're doing an interview right now, man. Um, so yeah, yeah, I I can see that, but then the the core stuff seems a little bit overplayed, and that it, it feels like um, he's not. I mean, the only thing I could kind of think of is that um, you know he was obviously potentially a candidate for this job, or at least his name was. I don't know, maybe he wasn't a candidate, but he was talked about as somebody potentially to step up kind of in the Brad Stevens role. Yeah. Um, but you know, he was the one that actually shut that down. I was like, no, I'm not ready. But has had experience with Team Puerto Rico in that role. Um, said eventually he'd like to move into that role. So I wonder if anybody coming in kind of saw his presence there and was like, so in four years, if Cora says he's ready, am I out regardless of my track record? Yeah. Kind of thing. Which could could potentially be hanging over them, sure. Yeah, but um, also seems, given the response that Cora had, that his uh, desire to step in the front office role is maybe several years down the line, um, and that I don't think he would. And this this part, I guess, is just speculation on, on myself, but I don't feel like he would basically oust someone to get that job. I think um, if he felt the time was right, he would just you would go to an open job. Yeah. So seemed like there was, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Are the red flags? Sure. But I think we were kind of aware of them already. Yeah. Uh, anything else on Breslow? So, oh, actually, yeah. Um, so the title is Chief Baseball Officer of, uh, whatever, of Baseball Operations. That's not what it is, but it's... You Are you sure it. you have that right? Nope, not at all, but you, I think <laughs> you'd pick it up what I'm putting down here, um, which also I'm going to call him the that, general manager, and yeah, well, uh, I'm not going to try to remember that. General manager, officially, 
is still open, uh, and Brazil will be allowed to name his number two, essentially the general manager. Um, how do you think that's going to play out? Uh, right now, that's Romero. Um, does he remain? Is it somebody else? What do you think? Yeah, that part's really interesting because the way that that's been phrased is almost like he's going to, you know, pick somebody. And it's it's not – I just haven't seen it phrased in a way that an internal candidate is going to be moved into that spot. Or I feel like that almost would have kind of been part of this whole announcement that's going to happen. Maybe it will, but the wording of it just – I don't know. I could see if, you know, Romero having been here for – 20 years and forever as well, right? I mean, you know, if they got passed over here for each of the first two positions, they might move on, you know, and, and try to find a different spot because if they're not in consideration here, when would they be? Um, you know, my first thought was Romero, but just kind of the the you know, or Ferrer, one of those. I mean, it just the way that I was reading it today was that he's going to bring somebody else in. I could be wrong. I might have been reading it wrong, but um, it'll be interesting because I feel like I feel like they might move on if if they're not chosen there. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way, and I think it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, part of Catillo's article from today was about how. Um, Sam Kennedy and Alex Cora, both uh, in the aftermath of Bloom, were talking about how the the Red Sox really needed a reset of the culture kind of there in the baseball operations GM office, um, which w- uh, made the Red Sox hesitant to promote some of the internal candidates, which I think would kind of add to that weirdness. Um, I mean, one couple of them are ready for those roles or larger roles somewhere else, which doesn't seem like they're going to get them here. Um, But if they feel the need to kind of have that culture change, um, I wouldn't imagine they would be sticking around then either of their own accord or uh, the Red Sox might make that decision for them, which I think was also some interesting reporting from today. Good piece. Chris Cotillo, go read it. Um, Always does good work. He sure does. Let's talk a little bit about the playoffs. Um, We were supposed to do some predictions, uh, but then our last podcast went uh, a little long, and uh, it was past Jake's We didn't want to do a third hour. (laughs) Yeah. So we didn't get a chance to, uh, but so we'll at least talk about as we head to the World Series now between the Texas Rangers Arizona Diamondbacks coming off some thrilling seven-game series. Very entertaining. Uh, up until that point, um, every series had really been a breeze, which uh, was also interesting. But uh, let's talk about the teams uh, kind of back from the beginning that did make the, the playoffs here. We had our wild card series, the Phillies versus the Marlins, Diamondbacks versus the Brewers. The National League, American League, Twins versus Toronto, and Texas versus Tampa Bay with uh, Baltimore and um, uh, who, who the hell else was the – or just Baltimore with the bye. Houston. Um, that was it. Those idiots. Uh, and the Braves and Dodgers with the byes in uh, – the National League. Those are all your teams there. Of those teams, Bob, where did you have any surprises? <laughs> yeah, I would say that this <laughs> entire thing was upside down for the whole last month. And I'm really glad that we didn't do any predictions because I would have looked like an asshole. Um, <laughs> I can't believe, you know, I guess in a small sample that these things are going to happen. And can have a whole other discussion about how many teams should be in the playoffs and what the format should be and how many days off there should be. I mean, I think regardless of who loses, 
the other side is just going to be louder about it, right? Oh, well, they, they had four days off. And in my mind, it's just like, well, then go play a scrimmage, you know, in that time. Um, it actually is one day different than it was previously when they had 10 teams making the playoffs. And I liked having fewer teams in the playoffs, but the break is not really any different than it was before. I just think that small samples, this stuff can happen. Um, that being said, I'm still shocked by a ton of it. I mean, you start with, I, I guess, kind of starting with the two teams that are here now. If you look at where the Diamondbacks were, they needed the Cubs to go on an outrageous losing streak in September, which included losing 15 of their last 22. Um, they went 1-6 against Arizona in the two series late in the season and then dropped a fly ball with, say, a Suzuki in right field that would have clinched a game with about four days left in the season that was, I don't know, one or a two-game swing at that point that the Cubs would have had that spot instead of the Diamondbacks if just that crazy sequence doesn't happen with the Cubs melting down losing, basically getting swept in two series against Arizona and then losing a game on a routine fly ball to right. So the fact that Diamondbacks were even there, I never gave them a chance. And then in the National League, I looked at it and said, there are four teams, I thought. And then when the Woodruff news came out, I kind of crossed Milwaukee off. But I, I always thought that it was Atlanta, the Dodgers, the Phillies, with the Brewers being fourth, especially without Woodruff, I thought that they really needed to have that full pitching staff to, you know, dominate a five-game series or something like that. Uh, and they were a guy short. But either way, just they seemed like such a long shot. Whereas Texas, um, less surprised, you know, whereas we saw them dominate for such a long stretch of the regular season before kind of that swoon that they had July into August made a couple of key trades, Montgomery being a huge trade, has turned into their ace, you know, one and one A with he and Eovaldi. Um, so I'm not as shocked by Texas, but the Arizona thing was shocking. It was shocking when they went down 2-0, and then they went down 3-2 and they're going back to Philly. Um, you know, myself and Mad Dog were both equally surprised by how that unfolded. So yeah, you know, I, I have some thoughts on some of the other series, but I guess, you know, those are my initial thoughts that just the whole thing was upside down. And that includes the AL East that we uh, wax poetic about for so much of the season and, and how difficult of a division this was. And, you know, when the Red Sox and Yankees were over 500 and in last place, and then they went out there and went 0-7 right out of the gate and everybody got swept. So, uh, just just a lot of things, and it, it just what makes the playoffs so great is that just anything can happen in these short series. Yeah, I kind of like that all the favorites were losing right away. Just as a fan of chaos, I thought it, it was going to lead to some more fun playoffs if it's not quite as chalky and predictable. Uh, I kind of feel like that's ended up what we got. Um, the run that both... Uh, well, kind of, I mean, the Rangers, uh, Arizona, and Philly all had where they were just kind of uh, Texas and Philly in particular just mashing their way, just hitting a, a bunch of home runs. Uh, Arizona playing just really all around really good baseball and fun fun baseball to watch. They have a really good mix of talent there. Um, rarely is it a disappointing World Series, and I don't think that's – what we're going to get. I think we're going to be in for a really good series because I don't think these two teams are similar. Uh, and so you're going to see really contrasting styles. And I think it's going to be really fun to watch. So I'm going to enjoy it. The, I'm um, going to enjoy it. Paul Seawall trade. What a yeah. gift from Seattle that was because that put their bullpen together perfectly. Like Ginkle was a, a decent, he's a good reliever. But he wasn't a closer, and they were using McGuff and Chafin and just all these different guys throughout the year. And then Seattle sends them like a lockdown closer, you know, and that really solidified everything for them. I think without that, that, that they're probably not in the playoffs, but also certainly not in this position. And that's one area, even though, you know, 
I'm going to take Texas in the World Series, which is means Arizona's going to win. Because, again, I've been wrong about everything. But <laughs> the, the bullpen difference between those two teams is significant. And I don't think that Texas has, as you said, gotten out in front and slugged their way through these games and has not had to rely on their bullpen a whole lot or have to do it in consecutive days. You know, you got to play three days in a row in the middle of the World Series. And they've got um, Spores setting up in LeClerc, who's an average closer, I would say, yeah. on the back end. And then you can't trust Chapman, you know, with, no. with the command that he has now. I, you know, I wouldn't even want to put him out there for three batters because he might hit all of them. So it's just there's such a significant bullpen advantage for Arizona that that's one area that I, I think that they could, you know. And, you know, I wanted to kind of talk about the bullpen in the previous series, and, and I think that that was the difference there. Because Craig Kimbrell, for a guy that is probably, maybe certainly going to make the Hall of Fame, he's got 417 saves. And he's clearly not done. I mean, in the regular season this year, he had um, 23 saves. He had 22 saves a year ago. You know, someone's going to pick him up and put him in that role for a couple more seasons. So he'll be up over 450, and he'll probably end up in the Hall of Fame. He's a 2.40 career ERA. But I never trusted him when he was closing in Boston for those years, especially in the playoffs. Um, and then you, you look at his playoff numbers. He's now up to 450 ERA, 1.43 whip, um, and had two losses in that NLCS. And that's where it turned. If he comes into that two-run game in game four and shuts it down, but he started walking people and he's pulling wild pitches and two nights in a row struggled. And that was the difference because they blew them out in game five and Kimbrell should have cut it, shut it down in game four and Philly should have won that series in five. And um, I, got, I got a weird feeling with the crowd out there that they're not going to uh, bring Kimbrell back for another season in Philly next year. No. And I mean, there's a reason it was Chris Sale, not Craig Kimbrell, closing out that 2018 World Series. <laughs> I mean, there's, maybe there's two reasons, but one of them was Homie was shaky as hell in that whole playoff run, and they couldn't really rely on him to get those last outs and shut it down. So they went to their best pitcher on the roster. Yeah, the uh, the 2018 playoffs there he gave up seven runs in 10 innings and change and he had it's incredible because he had six saves and that's the thing that's so tough is you know i think you know one of those was when benintendi made that game saving catch and then there was another game i remember against yeah. the yankees that the bases were loaded and it was a one-run game and there was like a dribbler to third and a close play at first that just barely got the guy and it was an exhale but that was every game you know he did have six saves in those playoffs. And I still didn't trust him. Yeah. Yeah, so. that's wild. Uh, the, the one thing I... Or I guess two more things I just wanted to mention about the playoffs. One, the pitch clock, we got used to it during the season. If you go back and you watch playoff games from previous years, before they changed the mound visits, before they changed the pitch clock... It is so refreshing to have these games over by 11 o'clock Eastern time and have them get that done in three hours. You know, we got used to it this season, but the playoff games, you know, w when you look at those old Red Sox-Yankees games, they'll show the clock and it's got like midnight of Game 7. I mean, Game 7 yeah. was a blowout and it didn't go to extra innings and it shows you the clock striking midnight. It's like, why? Why was this game four hours? Yeah. Um, it's been so much, it's been so great. The first game starts at five Eastern and it ends at eight. And then you flip over to the other game and that ends at 11 and you can kind of almost know that that's going to happen. And it's just, it's made the playoff experience better for me that I can go to bed at a normal time. Um, but then the other one I wanted to mention was the Adelise Garcia game five with the ejections and, and, um, uh, Dusty Baker <laughs> and all of that. And, just for, I mean, what a roller coaster for Garcia to have that home run trot, be part of inciting what could have been a brawl, um, 
Houston then hits the home run, there's a day off. You think that Texas is not going to have the momentum, and then he comes out, hits a grand slam in Game 6, hits a ball off the wall, hits a home run in Game 7. I mean, one of the great postseason series performances we'll ever see, and that's all after almost inciting a riot. Yeah, I love that swag. Great. I mean, the 2015 when Jose Batista threw the bat. That was the last time yeah. I could remember a playoff game, which was Toronto and Texas as well. The last time I remembered leaving game being like that was just incredible, you know, drama. That that was one time I didn't care about the half-hour delay that, that ensued. That whole inning leading up to the Batista Grand Slam was yeah. one of the stupidest innings of baseball in baseball history. With the, um, it was a throwback to the pitcher that went off the batter's bat. Yeah, I, and there was um, there was like three errors that allowed Texas to tie it. Right. Um, just everything about that entire inning, top and bottom, was is was just absurd baseball. Yeah. And then it ended with that punctuation mark of the grand slam and the just. Yeah absolute dismantling of the well yeah and then there was uh, (laughs) debris all over the field and there was another delay i mean i think that inning took over an hour yeah that was fun good that's great memory there (laughs) uh all right well uh you kind of started to get into it um you want to go any further than just picking texas you're gonna give some games yeah, we'll MVP. go Texas and six. Texas um, and six is your MVP. Oh, that's good. Um, I'll go Corey Seager, but I'm going to go with, um, you know, two more legendary performances for our boy Nate Valdi, who just has not disappointed yet. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I really just think it's that. I think between Montgomery and Uvalde, they'll be able to throw four games. I know that'll be against Gallon and Kelly, um, but they'll have those first two games at home. Um, and I just think that they, they're they both so locked in right now. So, again, I haven't gotten anything right, but I'll go Texas in six. I'm going Texas in seven, and I'm taking Uvalde as my MVP because he's going game one, which means he can start game one, he can start game four, and then come in in the bullpen in Game 7. So potentially three wins. And that's and Montgomery almost had three wins. Maybe, yeah. Because Montgomery they brought in in the fourth through the sixth or something like that the other day. Um, and he had thrown two, tri- two great games. He didn't get the win in one of them and then got the win in Game 7 against Houston. Yeah. You know, I mean, Garcia was going to get it regardless, but if Montgomery had had three wins in that series, it would have made it interesting. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to go with. Love it. Nasty Nate doing it again. Texas in seven. All right. As you pointed out, though, our predictions this year were quite terrible. So (laughs) take that as you will. Regular season ones weren't as bad as the playoffs. Yeah. And I'd love to meet somebody that has a Rangers Diamondbacks uh, casino ticket from three weeks ago. All right. Um, well, let's. Uh, I'll hand it over to you now for this next part because I know you got a nice little segment prepped for me. Yeah. So there was um, Red Sox stats on Twitter put together a poll, and he got over two thousand responses through his uh, Substack. Kind of did a poll on there, and a lot of great questions. Some of which we've covered here and don't need to go over again and you know some of those are in here that I'll, I'll go a little more quickly on but there was about six to eight of them depending on how much time we have to go over them that I wanted to review with you and just get your thoughts and let you know the results of what now these are of course the followers of Red Sox stats and um, you know there are certain topics that the writers at Over the Monster and our podcasters and the followers of Red Sox stats might feel a little bit differently about, might be a different subset of people. So 
you know, we can't just say this is a poll of everybody, but 2,000 people is pretty legitimate. So, Are you saying that people can have different opinions? <laughs> I am. I am saying that, Keaton. Um, and there is such a thing as, as groupthink, for better or worse. But the first one, Kenley Jansen and Chris Martin are both under contract for one more year. Um, are you ready to bring both of them back next season? Or would you put one or both of them on the trade block? What do you think? Yeah, I want them both back. Yeah, I agree. And most agreed. 74% want them both to return next season. 20% felt that Jansen should be on the trade block. Um, and Jansen certainly has his moments, but after... A season before that of, um, you know, I mean, if you put Jansen on the trade block, you're just going to have the same problem and you're going to need to go out and find either an eighth inning guy that can live up to anything close to what Chris Martin did, if Martin's the closer, or finding uh, someone with more closing experiences. Martin wouldn't have a whole lot of that. So, yeah, I'd be good with kind of keeping that the same. Uh, next one, it seems Faith has been lost in Alex Verdugo. Would you want him to be on the trade block this year for equal value on the trade block for whatever they can get? Um, keep him for the year or work out a contract extension? Uh, trade. No matter what? Yeah. All right. So 20% are ready to take whatever they can get for him. 67% looking to trade him for equal value. Uh, so that just leaves 13% that want him um, at least uh, not to explore a trade. 4% want to work out a contract extension out of that group. I was part of the 67% that would look to trade him for equal value because I just think back to the Andrew Benintendi trade and that felt like kind of selling low. And I don't really want to do that, even though I know they got Winkowski back there, but I felt like at the time they could have gotten a little bit more if they had done it earlier or tried to build up his value throughout a year. So um, the next one that kind of goes along with that, though, has to do with Willier Abreu. So as a corner outfielder for next year, Keaton, are you putting him in the starting lineup? Uh, do you think that you would just want him on the roster? Or do you think that he needs more development time in the minor leagues? Yeah, uh, this is an interesting one. Um, I don't think uh, he should just be the the corner outfield right away. Uh, I know he had a nice little debut here in a small sample size, but there are some red flags there that suggest that that's not the, the player that he is. Um, strikeout rate was the highest that he's ever had at any level. Um, walk rate, surprisingly, also the lowest. Um, his BABIP was 431, which was extremely lucky. Um, now he looks good. He looks like a guy that, um, you know, came up, adjusted well, and, um, I don't know if pitchers necessarily had enough time to adjust back. Um, but I think... You know he's not uh he's not kind of like a guy that comes with a ton of prospect pedigree, so I don't think um his performance kind of came out of nowhere uh, and was the his best slash line that he has had at any level um he had a nice little season at AAA, but we know it's a hitter friendly park, so I uh, think you gotta take that with a grain of salt but besides that he's really been mediocre every other level he's worked his way through so um, maybe he could prove me wrong, but I don't feel super comfortable on a small sample size just tossing him in there as the everyday guy. That seems a little bit extreme for me. Um, I think, I know you, when we were talking about this prior to recording, I kind of had the caveats in there because of the wording of the question. Um, pending other moves, meaning they've added a bunch of pitching, they filled holes in the lineup everywhere, they added a second baseman, so right field then becomes the only place where things aren't addressed, are you fine putting him there? 
Right. I still think I'd rather go with some something more established. Um, you have the resources to do it. Uh, I feel like I would be more comfortable with Rafaela there than him uh, in an everyday role. So I, he's been a nice piece. I feel like maybe fourth outfield. Um, continue to get him some at bats at the major league level. Maybe he starts in Triple A. Um, get some at bats here and there. But uh, I wouldn't say I'm ready to hand the reins over to the position to him. Yeah, I I agree with most of what you said there. I think that his AAA performance was mostly legit. Um, you know, I know a lot of the bad ball numbers were positive for him. The 22 homers were in 86 games. Um, 391 OBP, and he, you know, so he he walks. And you're right, the BABIP is craziness. I have trouble seeing a scenario where both he and Rafaela, with options, are both up and platooning to start the season, especially since I assume that they're not going to move on from Ref Snyder, who they signed to an extension. And they're gonna, there's other names in the mix between... Um, you know, some of the guys that are already here and then depending on whether Yoshida is going to be a DH and whether they're going to do anything with the Perdugo free agency. I mean, there's so many moving parts. So it's like, what's going to happen? As you said, what are the moves elsewhere? Are they getting pitching? They go and sign two frontline pitchers and, um, you know, I like Whit Merrifield at second base. Let's say they do that. And <clears throat> right field is like the one position, then I can see it, but 65% of the replies said that they are fine with him as a corner outfielder pending other moves. And yeah, there's just some different wording on that. 10% are ready to put him in the starting lineup no matter what. And I have seen that take a decent amount, surprisingly, that are just ready to put him there. And I'm not ready to do that. Uh, I do like that, that he plays good defense, has a good arm, you know, but I just... It's interesting. I feel like a week or two left in the season, most people thought Rafaela would be with the team to start next year, and Breu would probably be in the minors, and then I'm kind of here in the reverse now. So it's definitely, that's going to be one of the most interesting storylines, I think, depending on whether there's a spot available there. Next one is about Brian Bayo and Tristan Cassis, and would you offer both or neither or one a contract extension in the off season, both. Yeah. I would. Uh, I'd love to see some little Atlanta Braves specials on both of them. Buy out all their remaining years of control. Add one or two on the end. Make sure they're here for a while. Yeah. And at a low cost. I'm more there on Cassis, but. I think I agree with you. And 73% of people want to offer both of them long-term contracts. So whether that's you know, buying out some arbitration, adding an extra year, two years, you know, something similar to what they did with Garrett Whitlock. But even adding that extra year would be, but you know, I mean, after the, especially with the season that Cass has had, it was probably going to be top three or four for rookie of the year. I'm sure that he's going to want some significant money on those arbitration years that they're trying to buy out. So, uh, 6% wanted to extend neither, 17% were a yes on Cassis and a no on Bayo. This isn't really a, um opinion question, but it's will the Red Sox offer Shohei Otani a competitive top-of-the-market contract this winter? 32% say yes, 68% say no. And I think they will, um, but it's interesting kind of how it's not should they, it's a will they. Kind of the yeah. negativity um, uh, of, of uh, with the big free agents. Yeah, I I feel like there's too too much reporting connecting them together. It uh, seems weird. So I'm going to say no, but I think it's going to be one of those they're interested, uh, maybe air quotes interested, they're you know they're they're publicly in it, and then uh, some report comes out about a team that's made an offer, and they say no, it's too rich for our blood and back out. But they give us the appearance that they were 
chasing him, whether it was authentic or not. Who's to say? Yeah, well, that wouldn't really be competitive. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know Jeff Passan listed off six names of teams that he is fairly confident will be in it, and the Red Sox were one of them. So we'll see. I have a little more confidence that they that this is their spot. But um, don't forget New Balance headquarters. Listen, I cannot watch that New Balance commercial again this off season with <laughs> well that and about five others. A whole lot more of them if he does sign. That's fine. I just need I need something different with him in it if I'm going to see him on my television. The same five commercials over and over again. Are you ready to possibly rent Juan Soto if he hits the trade block? I found this the most interesting of the whole bunch. Um, I guess the options here are. Would you trade him for one year of Juan Soto, um, giving up multiple very good non-elite trade chips? Would you trade for one year of Juan Soto, including Marcelo Meyer or Roman Anthony in the deal? Or do you have no interest in trading for Soto without a contract extension in place, which we know he won't do because Scott Boris is his agent? Yeah. So this one, um, my initial reaction was, yeah, duh, I would, even if it's just for one year. And the more I thought about it, this roster is pretty fucked right now. And they got some things to straighten out. I feel like, obviously, he's a world-class talent and is, like, generational. But I feel like trading for him for a year on a busted roster is just kind of wasting that year that you have with him. Even though it would be great and we'd enjoy it, I would rather them fix the holes first and then go after him or long-term deal and fix the holes and have him be a part of it kind of thing. I don't think they the roster is in the shape right now where they're like, you add this one guy who's crazy good and that puts you on top. Like That's the, that's the nudge you need to get over those other teams that you're competing with because right now they're competing with the bottom of the American League. So they yeah. just got more issues to figure out. If it's only going to be one year, I would say no just because of the shape of the roster. Like It would feel like a waste to have them on the roster for a year. 45% of people agree with you on that. 50% would offer multiple pieces of very good but non-elite trade chips. 5% are willing to put Meyer or Anthony in a deal. And I was part I mean, of the 5%. You're going to have to elite. So that 50% that wouldn't offer a competitive offer, good luck. Yeah, I, I think it's just would you put a whole bunch of pieces that aren't Meyer and Anthony in. And it's if you put three or four of those in for somebody that, and you know that they, they're going to have to be part of your top 10, right? It's going to have to be yeah. Raffaella and York and uh, at least one other, which I'm doing for a year because I, and I would trade, I would trade Meyer for a year or Soto. I'm in that 5%. Um, I don't Even think they're as they far away as you do. And I think that they, I think if you add Soto, you do have that missing piece in the lineup. And I think you just need to add a frontline pitcher to go along with that. And you're well on your way. There's obviously more moves that need to be made. But Soto's estimate is $33 million for one year of arbitration. So you can't go out and sign two pitchers and you can't, you know, sign... Otani and this and that, you know, these are all kind of singular things that you could do as your big move. But I think you could make a Soto trade, sign an Aaron Nola, Yamamoto, Montgomery type of frontline pitcher, and you got a lot better team than I feel like you're giving them credit for, even though I know that they weren't good last year down the stretch. But I don't think that they're as far away. I think that there are paths. And, um,. You know, I guess I just love Juan Soto, and I'd like to see him here even if it's for one year. So, it's my I opinion mean, as I a would fan. I enjoy it. Yeah. But, yeah, it would be, uh, I would feel like, it would be, I feel like it would turn into one of those things where it's like, 
a decade from now, people are like, remember that one weird year when Soto was in Boston? The um, Joanna Cespedes year? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> I was trying so to think off the better. top of my head someone that that fit, and oh, I was coming up with Jason Bay, and I was like, that's not quite the talent. Yeah. But Cespedes, yeah, that'll, that kind of fits. All right. Well, I like how far apart we are on that one. We needed yeah. one of those. Um, which of these four pitchers should the Red Sox try hardest to sign? I know we did this in the last episode, but I thought the answers were interesting. Um, Aaron Nola, Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, and Shota Imanaga. So that's kind of leaving Yamamoto that I feel like most people have as the top priority. After that, I think your answer was Nola. Yep, it was. Yeah, mine as well. And he got 32%, which was behind Jordan Montgomery, who had 38% of the vote. And that was before the playoffs, before we saw playoff Jordan Montgomery, which I found really interesting at the time. Maybe not as crazy now. I think Montgomery's going to get, he's making a whole lot of money this postseason with every start. Um, and Snell and Imanaga got 15% of the vote on that one. So, you know, I think that's more of a what would you have to pay for the player? You know, maybe you'd be able to, or at least then, give three or four years to Montgomery versus five or six and 200 million or close to that to Nola. I think that probably factored into the vote. All right, two more. Voters are um, the TV voice of the Red Sox. Dave O'Brien or Mike Monaco? Do you have an opinion on who you would like to see as the TV voice of the Red Sox? You know, I don't. If it started next year, you don't. No. Uh, maybe this is the... The well, well, maybe not exactly the living in Chicago actually has absolutely nothing to do with this because obviously I can get the Nesson feed. Uh, You're just always watching the road feed. No, I just I usually just watch it on mute because I'm doing other stuff. Yeah. Um. So I, it's rare that I'm actually listening to the commentary. Um. But. O'Brien's call of Ortiz Grand Slam in the 2013 ALCS, I think, is like my favorite call of all time. The one and that so we I hear just at the start of every episode? Yes, we do. <laughs> Which is why part of the reason why it's in there. Um, and so I feel like I just always associate him with that moment, even though obviously that was just one moment uh, where his voice spoke. So... I had always been one that never understood the hate, but then at the same time, I was never listening to his voice. <laughs> so, yeah, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, I'm fine with whatever because uh, I'm whoever it is. I'm still probably going to listen on mute. Yeah, I don't want to trash anybody, especially in that area that I know is not an easy job. I'm a huge fan of Monaco's. I think when he fills in, um, it's brought. Just a little more life to the broadcast in the last couple of years. 64% of people voted for Monaco and 21% for O'Brien. Of course, you're wondering where the other 17% is. It sounds like most of them did a write-in vote for Don Orsillo, which is actually very funny. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> probably would have been my next choice, but I took this yeah. seriously, damn it. Uh, all right, last one. I don't think we need to dive into this one. Um, of the 2,000-plus voters that follow Red Sox stats, 58% of voters believe that Heim Bloom should not have been fired and at least been given another season. 28% were indifferent, and 14% were glad that the Red Sox moved on. So that one... That is bananas that was, to me. That was the one I was referencing that I feel like, you know... Yeah, Depending I think of the on, three hosts, I hung on the longest and didn't start yeah. to turn on Bloom until year four here. Sure. Um, but it was absolutely time. I just couldn't do it anymore. We, we knew who he was at this point. He was a guy who was going to be in on everything and not actually pull the trigger uh, and wasn't like had a much longer term view of his job than the front office. Uh, either wanted or was publicly saying because 
the we want to build the farm and compete thing was was not shown through the actions. And if that was actually what they wanted, he wasn't doing that job that they wanted. And it was incredibly frustrating to watch. I guess just of the probably 20 to 30 people that I talked to outside of our show and the website and everything else, it certainly wasn't 14% that were glad that they moved on. It's definitely a majority of, you know, those that I'm talking to out in the wild. So, yeah. anyways, a fun little exercise, something to uh, keep us interested when none of our teams have winning records these days around here. Except the Bruins, actually. Sorry. Are the, the Celtics not want to know? I don't know. I, I didn't see how they did tonight yet. Want to know. All right. How dare you slander the green? Take it, take it all back. You better. All right. I'm going to close this up. <laughs> yeah, that's a good place to end. <laughs> Before we end up in a fist fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Episode 299. Keaton Jerosher at Spoken Keats. Bob Osgood. Bob Osgood 15. Even though uh, Jake was taking the night off, you can find that lazy bum at Dev Jake. And of course, everything at OverTheMonster and OverTheMonster.com Reminder on the email RedSeaPodcast at gmail.com Thanks for listening and we'll be with you again in a couple weeks. Bye!